Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Well, good morning again. It's hour two of Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. Good morning, good morning, good morning. If you haven't done so already, please visit us at MyFaithRadio.com. One of the things that you can do there today is sign up for our Every Day in May book giveaway. So Max Lucado has a book called In the Footsteps of the Savior, where you get to explore what the Holy Land might have looked like through Jesus's eyes. Um, And we're giving away a copy of Max Lucado's um, In the Footsteps of the Savior every day this month. So if you haven't signed up already, please do so for our month of May every day book giveaway, Max Lucado's book In the Footsteps of the Savior. You can do that at MyFaithRadio.com. So let's see. Debates in D.C. Um, This is what's going to continue to top the news um, out of our nation's capital this week. And it's going to be the debt limit debate. It's going to be the conversation about raising the debt limit. I totally 100% anticipate they're going to raise the debt limit again. I I absolutely am confident we are not going to default. So any um, people out there fomenting panic about that, uh, I'm, I'm confident we're not going to default on our debt. <clears throat> However, the details do matter. And federal spending has outpaced federal revenue for a long time here in the U.S. And the financial gap between our national spending and our national revenues is ever widening. Um, And so that's what we call the national debt. And so part of the debate right now um, going on in D.C. centers on human, what I will describe as human work and human dignity. And there is dignity in work. I'll just come right out and tell you what my position is. There is dignity in work. So there is a political and a moral debate going on over whether or not there should be work requirements um, related to the receipt of government benefits, particularly when we're talking about able-bodied adults who are not caring for a dependent child or another dependent. So there are only one out of every four able-bodied adults currently receiving federal financial assistance who work. Only one in four of those adults who are receiving federal benefits, who are able-bodied and not caring for a dependent, only one in four of them is working or looking for work. One in four. Um, And there is currently no work requirement tied to receiving welfare, receiving government benefits. And so the arguments go in two directions. Um, Some argue it is not morally right to link the two issues of work and government benefits. Others argue on moral grounds that um, it's actually like we were made to work. There's dignity in work. Work is actually dignifying. Um, Others argue, nope, a requirement of work is 
onerous, it's unfair, it's even unjust. So um, would it be unjust or unfair to expect people who are able to work and who are not taking care of children or other, or other dependents, unfair or unjust to expect people who are able to work to find work within some reasonable period of time? Is that actually unjust? And if so, what is your definition of justice? Like, that's the question that should be asked. If you're going to make this argument from a biblical and a redemptive worldview, then we were made for work. Like, from Genesis on, we were made for work. Um, I mean, Paul comes right out and says, you know, the the man who doesn't work, like, like... It's harsh. It's biblical, though. I mean, like, right? He doesn't eat. I have a story about this on our farm. We have uh, a son who, back when we were, you know, trying to teach the the good, productive work ethic, mashed potatoes one of his absolutely favorite things. And so we had planted potatoes. We each had planted a particular row of potatoes. And um, this one individual in the family decided he was not going to weed his row of potatoes. And he sat in the shade at, at the edge of the woods while the rest of us hoed our potato rows. And so his row of potatoes, you know, got weedier and weedier and weedier. And so um, my solution was to begin serving mashed potatoes every night at dinner as, the, as a side item, but not allowing him to have any. Because the man who doesn't work doesn't eat. Now, he got everything else, right? He got the meat and the, and, you know, and the, and the leafy green vegetable, but he didn't get the mashed potatoes, which are his favorite. And so the next time we had the opportunity to go down together and weed our rows, guess who was out there weeding his row of potatoes? Yeah, because that man uh, began to understand as a boy the, the connection between work and the benefits of work. And so he wasn't going to receive the benefits without doing any work that he was totally able to do. So that's the conversation I think we have to begin having. Ephesians 4.16 talks about it as... You know, the labor of the body, every part of the body doing its part in order that the whole body um, might be able to grow and mature and build itself up. So most Americans actually do support a work requirement for um, the receipt of ongoing long-term financial assistance from the government, um, because most of us do understand the dignity of connecting work and reward. And so when we talk about this on a national level, you know, you just need to continue to ask yourself, you know, for you, what's the theology of work? Um, and what's the connection between work and reward or work and benefit? And what does it look like for every part of the body to be working in order for the whole body to work properly? It's ongoing conversations we will continue to have as a nation. David Jimenez is going to join us next. He's an advocacy expert for Prison Fellowship. We're going to talk during this National Mental Health Awareness Month about people who are in prison and the connection between uh, mental health and those who are incarcerated. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. David Jimenez is joining us now. He's an advocacy expert with Prison Fellowship. David, good morning. Morning, Carmen. How are you? I am well. How are you today? I'm good. Very grateful to be here. Oh, amen. We're grateful that you are here. Talk with us about um, National Mental Health Awareness Month and the the connection and concern for those who are incarcerated. 
Absolutely. So this month, May, marks National Mental Health Awareness Month, and we're seeing so many great conversations in churches, communities, neighborhoods around the country about the immense challenges faced by those who are struggling with mental health needs or mental illness. And these conversations have been going on for years, but we know they've really grown since 2020 as we saw the pandemic and the social isolation that took place after really lead to an increase in that sense of isolation, loneliness, um, and lack of connections that so many Americans faced. This issue is very important for Prison Fellowship because as the nation's largest Christian nonprofit working in prison, we see so many of our neighbors behind bars, men and women who bear God's image, who are struggling with these issues. So we know that 43% and 23, 43% of state prisoners and 23% of federal prisoners have had a documentary, documented history of mental health challenges. We know that one in nine Americans who have both a mental health disorder and a substance abuse disorder were arrested uh, within the past year. And that those same people make up 2% of the US prison of the US population, but 15% of those who were arrested within the past year. And so we know these individuals often come into contact with the justice system. And we want to ensure that their entire experience of the justice system, whether it begins in an arrest or ends in arrest or ultimately leads to incarceration, is marked by compassion, care, dignity, and respect. I don't think that the connection between um, mental illness um, and substance abuse and crime is mm-hmm. going to be a surprise to anybody. Like I, I just I don't think that that combination um, surprises anyone. I think what we don't know, David, is how we just try to avoid people. Like right, right, we're not trying to engage, and we certainly don't know if presented, let's say, on a subway with a person who is acting. Um, appears to be having um, a bit of a mental breakdown and we feel threatened by his presence. We don't know how to de-escalate that situation. We feel afraid and, and, and trapped and we feel as if, you know, something bad is about to happen. Um, can you just talk with us about um, kind of what we're feeling? Because I think what we're feeling is fear And we don't know what to do with that. And then when we come back from a very brief break, can we talk about de-escalation training and how we get it? No, absolutely. There's a lot of fear and anxiety as we think about those interactions. And we know that those fears aren't simply faced and that sense of uncertainty isn't only experienced by us as civilians. We also know it's experienced by men and women who are uniform, who are in law enforcement, who Mm -hmm. after encounter those situations every day and that often taking a burden on their own mental health, their own wellness, their own struggles with uh, their families and, and communities in need. So we really want to ensure Prison Fellowship that those individuals who are on the front line every day have that quality training they need to go into those complex, uncertain, difficult situations, whether they're dealing with a suicidal situation, a substance abuse challenge, serious mental illness, and, and have that toolbox they need to navigate that situation the best they can in a way that serves the individual, serves the civilian, serves the officer, serves the community, and benefits public safety as a whole. All right. So we're going to talk when we come back from a very brief break. We're going to continue our conversation with David Jimenez, and we're going to talk specifically about um, prison fellowships support um, for law enforcement de-escalation training, what that looks like, and how we can um, how we can encourage it. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. 
As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. Continuing our conversation with David Jimenez, he's an advocacy expert with Prison Fellowship. We're talking about uh, well, we're talking about the need for de-escalation, um, particularly between law enforcement and people who are um, suicidal, um, maybe uh, on an active substance that is um, disrupting their ability to behave in a way that is rational, um, and or people who are. Um, you know, suffering with mental illness. And so, David, talk with us about, like, what is de-escalation training? And then let's talk specifically about the Law Enforcement De-escalation Training Act. Sure. So de-escalation training really just summarizes that toolkit that an officer has to think about what ways they can resolve a public safety situation or a wellness check in a way that doesn't involve use of force. So, really thinking about how, whether in their physical language, the tone, the words they use, the way they really compose and present themselves as a mind, body, and soul, the way that they can reduce the temperature or perceived temperature within an interaction with a civilian to uh, limit and avoid use of force as much as possible and either conduct a lawful arrest or consider whether someone should be deflected from the criminal justice system entirely into a different mental health or drug abuse treatment option. So it really is that toolkit of alternatives to use of force to help resolve a situation in a way that benefits uh, the individual safety, the officer's safety, and the community as a whole. So what the Law Enforcement De-Escalation Training Act did, it was passed in December of this past year, is it creates a new federal funding stream to support de-escalation training across the country. And a really great coalition behind this Groups like Prison Fellowship, the Fraternal Order of Police, Salvation Army, National Association of Evangelicals, Major County Sheriff's Association, Major City Chiefs Association, really just an incredible coalition of believers, Christians, people of faith, mental health organizations, and law enforcement, recognizing the importance of good quality training. I think a big benefit of this bill is that it's going to require the COPS office within the Justice Department to work with stakeholders to really identify the best practices, the best standards in the uh, training space and use that to identify where funding should go. Because a major problem we saw after the death of George Floyd several years ago is that a lot of different training program providers came out of the woodworks and they were kind of promising the world to a lot of departments who were trying to make good changes after that horrible incident. But what law enforcement actually found is that sometimes that training was poor quality It was ineffective. It was fly by night, kind of a drive through training. It wasn't actually really delivering the best practices needed to uh, set officers up for success. So I think the combination of this bill in terms of providing funding, especially to rural, smaller communities, combined with really setting a gold standard of what good training looks like, is hopefully really going to improve the quality of policing around the United States. 
You can um, follow the cops office that um, um, that we're talking about right now that David just mentioned. You can follow them on Twitter at cops, C-O-P-S office, cops office. It is um, the Department of Justice's office of community oriented policing services, cops. Um, and uh, and it's a great opportunity, I think, David, for us to um, alert our own, um, let's say, you know, mayor, city government, city government, um, police chief, you know, to to talk on a very local level about what is available, the kinds of support that they can that is available to them right now through the federal government. Um, and to say, you know, I would like to see in my community, I would like to see all of our officers trained in de-escalation. And here is a way um, that that can happen um, and then be willing to be a community partner in that effort, because that's a part of this as well. Absolutely. We very much believe at Prison Fellowship that public safety is a community responsibility. All of us need to be involved and step up if we want to make our neighborhoods thrive and if we want to see individuals who are in crisis have better outcomes. We see that in our work behind bars in terms of the public-private partnerships that we're part of with DOCs. And we want believers to have that same attitude as they think about how they can support and collaborate with law enforcement and public leaders in their community. And I think that's so important, especially with an issue like policing, where you know the federal government has a role to play, the state government, but policing is fundamentally a local city county issue. And so there's no substitute for civilians and citizens getting involved to identify what are the growth areas, what are the pain points, and what are the opportunities right in front of their specific community and police department. Um, This is a completely different topic, but on Friday, we had a conversation here on air with um, Dewey Williams about um, his new book, Finding Joy on Death Row. And if you haven't read it yet, David, um, I just want to lift it up to you, and I want to lift him up as well. He's a pastor in North Carolina who is, um, you know, doing ministry uh, in in a place where most of us would just can't even imagine going to visit. Um, and it was such a sweet, he's such a sweet, humble individual, and the stories that he is bringing forward from believers on death row and the ministry that they have, um, not only in our, you know, with each other, but to others, um, is, it's just pretty remarkable. And so if you're not familiar with him, I just wanted to lift him up today, um, and commend him to you. Thank you. I'll take a look. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anything else that you want to leave us with today, David, as a part of this conversation about, um, the way that we as Christians in our local communities might be advocating not only for de-escalation training for our law enforcement officers, but engaging in it ourselves. Absolutely. So at Prison Fellowship, we know that uh, people of faith have the immense power to work towards help redeeming uh, their neighbors who are in prison and who are affected by crime and incarceration, and they can be the hands and feet of the body of Christ, whether that's volunteering in a prison or jail, connecting with our Angel Tree program to affect families impacted by incarceration. We, it's amazing to see those stories of individual transformation. And a prison fellowship, we believe that focus on individual change has to be combined with our work as Christians to redeem systems as a whole, to try to identify ways for the criminal justice system from the policing phase to, to the reentry phase 
to be marked by a greater respect for human dignity, potential, and public safety. So if you're really interested in kind of connecting to your faith to those policy questions about crime, justice, public safety, and incarceration, would love to encourage folks to prayerfully consider joining the Prison Fellowship Justice Ambassador Program, where we equip individuals, ordinary people in their communities to talk to their lawmakers, change the culture, engage with their neighbors to think about these issues in a better and more holistic and biblical light. Oh, I love that. All right. You can become a justice ambassador at prisonfellowship.org. There is a justice ambassador toolkit Um, All kinds of great things um, right there available to equip you to advocate for justice in your own community. All right. So you can check that out at prisonfellowship.org. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Have a blessed week. You too. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Let's take a break for our friend John Stone Street with Breakpoint. All right, what are your kids going to hear today? What are your grandkids going to hear today? What are your neighbor kids going to hear today? What kind of messages are they going to hear from the world about who they are? They're going to be told that they can define themselves, that they can define their own identity, that they could be defined by their achievements. They could be defined by their popularity. Maybe they could even be defined by their feelings. They could certainly define themselves by their sexuality or their gender, each of those just being a question of personal choice, right? I mean, that is what the world is telling our kids. So what are we telling our kids? I mean, too often, um, we as Christian adults, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, we feel nervous. We're even intimidated to engage our own children on the subjects of their bodies or their gender or sexuality, their sense of self. So how can we raise confident kids in such a confusing world? We need a parent's guide to ground the identity of our kids in Christ. Where are we going to get that? Mm -hmm. Ed Drew joins us next. That's what we're talking about. Raising confident kids in a confusing world. That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. Ed Drew is here. You can um, find him as the director of Faith in Kids at faithinkids.org. Ed started this ministry um, to equip parents and churches in raising children together to trust Christ. Um, And before founding Faith in Kids, Ed spent a number of years as a children's ministry leader for a large church in London. He's the author of several books and the host of the Faith in Kids podcast. And maybe the most important criteria he brings today, he is married to Mary and the father of three children who are 15, 12, and 8. Ed, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you very much for having me back. It's lovely to be here. Yes. Um, what are your 15, 12, and 8-year-olds saying about your latest work, Raising Confident Kids in a Confusing World? Uh, we did have a laugh yesterday. My 15-year-old overheard me talking to my wife, Mary, about parenting. And we did say, look, we're, we're not trying to tell anyone we've got it right perfectly. And she shouted from the other side of the room. And I'm available to to tell anyone that if they're questioning it. <laughs> so uh, we, we are doing our very best to be clear. This book is not written from the place of perfection. 
uh, or even a sort of parenting guru. We're trying to show people Jesus Christ. I, I do think parents need a bit more of him. <laughs> so I I really appreciate, um, first of all, the um, I think the the grace that is in here for parents um, acknowledging. I mean, we are acknowledging that our children are subject to tons of messaging, um, just constantly information, not just information, but um, people to seek, seeking to influence them constantly in more ways than we can even imagine. And so when we talk about equipping parents and encouraging parents who feel overwhelmed and maybe ill-equipped, um, just issue an invitation for that parent right now, or maybe that grandparent who, like, we're like terrified to talk to our kids about identity and sexuality and gender and all of these things. Yeah. The, the first thing I want to say is as a parent or grandparent, you are God's plan A, and you are the world's expert on the child who has stood before you. So don't for one moment believe you need me or your pastor uh, or, or some expert on the television. You you are the one they are coming to. You are the one they need. That's the first thing to say. God, they are God's gift to you and you are God's gift to them. And then the second thing to say is the name God most often uses for himself in the New Testament is our father. That is the name Jesus wanted us to use, our loving heavenly father. So in him, there is a perfect parent. There is one who loves this child in front of you more than you do. So I would argue that those two facts mean there can be no conversation. There can be no issue in our culture. There can be no disagreement that is not best discussed lovingly, carefully between the two of you. Yeah, and how I can help my child or my grandchild see the one who is their perfect father and see themselves in relationship to him that is really the perspective on identity that you are hoping um, we can arrive at. Exactly. The, the mistake many of our young people are growing up with is thinking they need to do more. They need to mm. try harder. They need to achieve to be a part of God's family, to be a Christian. That's the most often answer I hear from teenagers. Are you a Christian? I'm trying. That is not the category the Bible gives us. The Bible says you're loved. If you're trusting in Jesus, you're in the family and you, you can't leave and you wouldn't want to. And and this is flourishing. This is the best life Jesus promised. So that is th this. So when we talk about it being about identity, let's just be clear. This is not this is not new. This is not a new message. This is not something difficult to get your head around. <laughs> Christianity has always been about identity. It is who we are before it is about what we do. So um, behavior, I think, is often what we are measuring. And, uh, and so one of the things I think you're, you're helping us do um, is make the connection between identity and behavior, but not m constantly measuring behavior when what we're trying to do is help our child become who they really are in Christ. I was talking to um, my uncle, who's not a Christian, about that. Uh, my child right now is taking public exams. So there's a fair bit of pressure in my family. And I told my uncle, I said to him, uh, I said to my daughter that 
when she was in tears saying she's going to fail her exams, I said, and that would be fine if you failed them all. My love for you would not change and God's love for you would not change. And my uncle, who isn't a Christian, when he heard this story, said, I could have said that to my children. Mm. And he was just being very honest. And it, it surprised me in that he's saying, no, that's it would have mattered if his children had failed their exams. It would have mattered if they dropped off the bottom of the class. He's not sure he could have loved them just the same. Mm. So to be a Christian is to think and feel differently about the challenges in front of us. And so you're absolutely right. We, we could work hard in exams and study hard out of worship. We, we, could, we want to give of ourselves the best we can. But as parents, grandparents and influencers in our children's lives, we should just ask the question, are they totally clear that their love is independent of their performance? That God's love for them is independent of their behavior, which I think as a parent is, is not a simple thing to say. No, it's not. I'm writing it down right now. <laughs> like it's not. It's not. It's not. It's uh. It's challenging. Um. We're talking with Ed Drew. Um. the The book is raising confident kids in a confusing world. A parent's guide could also be a grandparent's guide. Uh, to grounding identity in Christ. Yes, we are giving away copies today, but pay attention because our text line is down. And so the the way we normally do this is not working today. And so to enter the drawing for the copies of Raising Confident Kids that we have to give away today, you need to go to myfaithradio.com slash book, myfaithradio.com slash book, and then you can um, enter the drawing for copies of Raising Confident Kids. Ed, um, let's give some encouragement uh, to parents who whose kids are, you know, not yet professing Christ. And so how do we encourage um, this identity conversation? How do we teach identity and this identity um, paradigm with children who, you know, are not yet believers? I think the first thing to say is... Um, we are all living this identity paradigm, whether we're Christians or not, and whether our children are believing or not. So our children are our children, and they know they belong in our family. And they never, you don't have to say to them before you go to bed, you know, do you think you've earned your place in your in our family today? Or do, do you think you're still my child today? Or, or how is your performance as my child going? We never have those conversations. Because that's not how love and being children as sons and daughters work, that they are in our family as identity. This is who we are. And we might have family traditions. We do. You know, in our family, we always in our family, we don't ever. And we're all going to today because that's who we are. It might be how we speak about church. It might be how we speak about lying or sharing. So we're, we're all living this identity world. And I think that the detail is and the data says, so the Bible and the data is clear for our children to grow up knowing who they are in Christ. We just have to be talking about this in the crevices and the gaps of life. We we have to make sure that Jesus isn't only the topic of conversation in church. Our children have to get that Jesus Christ offers belonging in the same way we offer belonging. So Exactly as I'm talking to my daughter, you know, I'm praying with my daughter about her exams each morning at the moment. 
And I'm praying she would know that our love will not change and his love will not change. Rather than just sending her out the door saying, off you go, do your best. How, how do we get Jesus into the, the tears and the laughter of every day? Um, would you do something for us, Ed, that might be unusual to be asked? But sometimes we need um, a demonstration. Sometimes we need somebody to show us the way. So I'm guessing that there are parents listening right now and maybe even kids on their way here in the United States of America, on their way to school for exams. And um, the parent didn't think to pray with their child and maybe doesn't even quite know how to pray with their child. So could you just pray for kids right now on their way to exams, wherever they are? That'd be an honor. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you that you know us and you love us. I thank you that you're our creator. I thank you that today lies before you and you know every detail. Please help us to do our best today out of worship to you. But more than that, help us to know your love for us does not change. Whatever grade comes back on a certificate, because of Jesus, you always give us an A. You are always with us. You are always loving us. And our grades will not change that. Thank you, Father, that your love just keeps on coming. Amen. Amen. We're going to continue our conversation with Ed Drew in just a moment. You can find the resources we're talking about today at faithinkids.org. In addition to the book we're talking about right now, Raising Confident Kids in a Confusing World, there's also um, a podcast you can subscribe to and um, Sunday School materials as well that are linked uh, to all of this. So faithinkids.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll return to our conversation with Ed Drew in just a moment. If you're a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome pack gift. Request yours today at myfaithradio.com. We're continuing our conversation with Ed Drew. He's a dad. He's the ministry director of Faith in Kids. He's the author of Raising Confident Kids in a Confusing World, A Parent's Guide to Grounding Identity in Christ. We're giving away copies today to enter the drawing. You need to go to myfaithradio.com slash book. Myfaithradio.com slash book. Our text line is not working. So if you text me, it's not coming through. So go to myfaithradio.com slash book. Um, Ed, let's uh, let's let's continue in our conversation about encouraging and equipping parents. Um, let's go. Let's go to the topic of you know maybe the hardest one of the day. Like I don't know necessarily what to say to my kid or to an, uh, to another parent who maybe has a kid who is very evidently confused about gender identity um, or feeling confused about their sexuality. So help us enter into those conversations. I think the first thing to say is that the, the conversation with our own children is probably going to look different to our conversation with, with other parents. So we, we just need to know that uh, it's, a, it's a culturally hot topic. So as Christians, we just do well with other people to, to talk carefully and gently uh, and, and to ask questions and to care well. So if another family is going through gender dysphoria with their own child, 
uh, that there will definitely be tears and confusion and difficulty. So irrespective of whether their values align with ours, we need to show them compassion and care. I think that the thing we want to be talking about with our own children is our bodies are male or female. Our little ones are a boy or a girl. I find it amazing that in Genesis chapter two, after we're told we're made in God's image, the next headline, the next sentence is we're made male or female. That That is a defining feature of who we are. And biologically, every single cell of our body is male or female. It is medically impossible for a boy to become a girl or a girl to become a boy. So I think it's helpful for our children to get that. And that probably happens with our children because, you know, being in a family means we've sat by the bathtub when they were little kids and we've talked about bodies and we've had awkward conversations. And as parents, we're the ones to have those awkward conversations. So I think the first thing is, is to say we're, we're male and female. And I just say that the second thing probably to talk about is let's just be clear about gender stereotypes and maybe how unhelpful they are. So if a little girl wants to be a boy, it's worth just asking her why. What is it about being a boy that's so appealing? Because as a girl, you're free to climb trees and get muddy and play dangerous sports. And as a boy, you're free to write songs and write poetry and do ballet and dance. So I think those are the two angles I'd probably want to be talking to my children about. The biological reality as well as culturally, what does it mean to be a boy or a girl? I think the conversation about um, about stereotypes is really, really help- helpful. And I love the language that you give us. I mean, you know, you're free. You know, as a little girl, you're free. You're free to um, do difficult things and be good at math or, um, or yes, uh, play sports that are intensely competitive and hard. Um and as a as a boy, you're free to to cook um, and to exploit explore creative arts and I mean on and on and on. I think those are really helpful and empowering tools to give to parents. And what we stumble over, um, to be quite honest, what we stumble over are not biblical expectations but cultural expectations. Mm. You're, you're you're totally on it, and I I suspect you got there before I did. But it's taken me a while to understand that that outside of church leadership or marriage, when the Bible has some things to say that we could discuss another time about male and female roles, the body, the Bible has nothing to say really to boys and girls about what it means to be a man or a woman, except they have a male and female body. So I, th- I think you're exactly right. And I think as Christians, we can sort of have a, a nagging thought in the back of our mind, is it more Christian for girls to wear beautiful dresses? And is it more Christian for boys to play rough sports? So I I think we just have to check where those cultural views are coming from. They're they're not in the Bible, but they might be sort of deeply ingrained in our upbringing or our culture. Mm, So good. Um, All right, let's uh, let's close with this. Let's encourage parents... um, to have this eternal perspective during their day-to-day parenting, because that is really helpful. I think, and I think here probably there are, there are two ways we do that. Either when things are going incredibly well, 
And we get to just daydream with our kids about how much better the new creation will be. We get to say even our best day has nothing compared to that, being with Christ. And secondly, I think it's on our very, very worst days. I think it's when the tears don't stop. It's when your heart aches. I think on those days, we don't just sort of drop in a trite soundbite, like it'll all be okay in the new creation. But we do just talk about how Christ is up to something good. He will carry this on to completion. He will do a good work in us and the tears will stop. I um I just really appreciate who you are and what you're doing and how you're doing it. And thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, Ed Drew, you can find him at faithinkids.org, faithinkids.org. Lots of great resources there. There's a YouTube channel. There's a podcast. There's Sunday School Lessons, the book we've been talking about today, Raising Confident Kids in a Confusing World, A Parent's Guide to Grounding Identity in Christ. We are giving away copies. To enter the drawing, you need to go to myfaithradio.com slash book myfaithradio.com slash book. Ed, I hope you'll come back. <laughs> well, thank you for having me back and I look forward to having the next opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah, so I want I want to tee up I want to tee up an idea. Could we talk mm. about how Noah and his wife must have raised their children in such a confusing <laughs> world because their kids ultimately got on board. Well, look, isn't it all about the elephants? Doesn't a kid go anywhere when dad says, come with me, I've got an elephant? I know, there's elephants, there's giraffes. Get on board. Yeah, there you go. I really, I just appreciate what you're doing. All right, uh, that's Ed Drew. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. All righty. There is a day before us. What will we do with it? What will we make of it? Who will we be in the midst of it? How will we walk our faith out into the world that God so loves and do so in ways that honor Jesus? I don't know. I'm going to circle back to where we started the conversation today, and that is by acknowledging that Tim Keller is no longer alive in this world, but most certainly alive um, in the fullness of the presence of God in the kingdom of heaven I feel very confident he heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, and he's now reveling in a reality that we can scarcely imagine. Um, and he spent his life being sure that other people knew the God he knew, he knows. And, um, and so how are you going to spend your day? You have a day to spend. It is a gift. It is a resource. It is being consumed right now, moment by moment. And so how are you spending the day that God has graciously given you today? And if there's no tomorrow for you in the here and now, how do you want to have spent the last day that God gave you? Well, I appreciate that at least part of it you chose to spend with me. That's a great honor and a great, and a great gift. With whom are you going to spend the rest of it? Certainly spend it with God and spend it well. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, 
Click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.